Living Corporate is brought to you by The Access Point. The reality is, this is the largest influx of black and brown talent corporate America has ever had. And as a result, a variety of talent entering the workforce are first-generation professionals. The other reality? Most of these folks aren't learning what it means to navigate a majority white workplace in their college classes. Enter The Access Point, a live weekly web show within the Living Corporate Network that gives black and brown college students the real talk they need and likely haven't heard elsewhere. Every week, our hosts and special guests are dropping gems, so don't miss out. Check out The Access Point, airing every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Central Standard on livingcorporate.tv. Hey y'all, welcome to the break room. Um, we're excited to, to have y'all. For those of you, if this is your first time coming in the break room, we want to pause to introduce ourselves and tell you a little bit about the show and what you can expect. And then we're going to hop into this topic of cultivating allyship. So I am one of four co-hosts of the show. I am Dr. Luanda Hill. This is the amazing Dr. Nikki, <laughs> our pronouncer, she, her, hers. I'm Dr. Lawanda Hill, she, her, Dr. Nikki Coleman, she, her pronouns, and we are two of the co-hosts of The Break Room. So The Break Room is all about centering Black mental health at work because we know institutions, organizations, well, we know the U.S. Um, to be anti-Black, and therefore organizations, institutions that Black people have to move and work in are as well, and over time, that wears and tears at our mental health. So we have created a web show with four black doctors. We was recently recently featured in Forbes, y'all. If y'all haven't checked it out, if not, Dr. Nikki can Google and drop it in the chat. Y'all can check it out. I can definitely do that. Um, we were recently featured in Forbes because we are four black, black doctors who've come together to um, talk about black mental health at work. And so the structure of the show is that we check in. We usually do some tea. The last couple of weeks have felt very inappropriate to talk about any tea, which is any gossip that's going on in the world that we want to weigh in on. And we've just really been talking about recent events. And we're going to do the same thing tonight. I'm going to... Dr. Nick is going to weigh in on her reactions. I'm going to weigh in on my reactions to the verdict, the recent murder. Um, and so, yeah, I've been bracing myself for that. So we usually start off with the tea and then we hop into a topic. And tonight, I think it's timely. We're going to talk about cultiva cultivating allyship because that is something that gets co-opted. It's, um, it's a, a verb. It's not a now. It is a verb. It is an action thing to do. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. We take some questions. So feel free as y'all are listening, drop questions, drop reactions, um, and we will address them. And then we close out with the last nerve. Dr. Nikki, you want to tell people what the, the last nerve is? The last nerve is so many things. It's layered. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> um, the last nerve is an opportunity that one of one of us as hosts gets to ooh, have a moment to just relate, relax, and release something that we have been holding on, something that has really happened over the past week that has worked our last nerve. It's a, it's, it's my favorite part of the show, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> so we turn our timers on and we go into the last nerve. And that is the structure of the show. So if y'all feeling it, y'all digging it, it gives you something, then definitely come back next week. Uh, bring a friend, tag a friend. We are live recorded, but you can get the, uh, we are live hosting, but you can get the recorded version. Um, so let's go ahead and hop into it tonight. So the news, well, what do we start with? Which one fresh on your mind? 
I don't it well, and I'm gonna try not to cry, but um so it's been a heavy week. It's been a very long, heavy for 13 months, right? But this mm-hmm. week has felt particularly heavy. Um and part of it for me has been the murder of Micaiah. I've heard people say Makia, Micaiah, I'm not sure. I've not heard someone who knows her authentically say her name. So I'm going to offer both um, Makia Wright. No, Dante Wright. God bless. Makia Bryant. That is a conversation in and of itself, right? There are so many names. But that this 15-year-old gorgeous brown-skinned young black child uh, was shot four times in the chest by a Columbus, Ohio police officer because apparently she was a threat to him because she was wielding a knife of some sort. Um, I have intentionally not watched the the uh, video. Um, I have set a practice of not watching videos um, over the past however many years. Um, I think Alton Sterling was the last video that I actually watched and realized like this was absolutely not good for my well-being or psyche. So I haven't actually seen the video. Um, and I tried to, re- I worked really hard to avoid it. I did. Um, and I, yeah, um, it's devastating. Um, and I think that one hits home in particular for me, Dr. Lawanda, because one, not only is it another loss of life, not only is it another loss of um, life at unnecessary violence, mm. not only is it a loss of young Black life and potential, just think about all the potential. Think about where you were at age 15. Um, hmm. And if your life had been cut short, right? But for me, it's, it has been particularly problematic because I've heard um, Black folks in the community sort of justify the need yeah. to use this level of force. Um, and in particular, well, just Black folks in general, it hurts different whether I hear it coming from other women um, than I do if it comes from Black men. And so that cuts a little bit deeper. And that has been always been my experience that uh, what I perceive to be internalized racism, when I encounter it, it always cuts deeper. Mm. So that's mm. where I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm reacting mm. to both. I think definitely it's it's the use of force of deadly force for me that I mm. that I, I that lingers with me. I too have made it a practice ever since. Um, I don't know if it was like 2015 not to watch any videos. I don't think it's helpful. I don't think that um, I choose to want to see them living their lives and not them losing their lives. So it's that piece for me. And it's the use of deadly force and just the the internalized, like you said, perception of a threat of a 15 year old with a knife. And I just keep thinking about the stark contrast of back during COVID when the six, I don't know how old the white male was, 16 year old carrying a rifle, you know, through the crowds, made it out alive. I think Kyle Rittenhouse Dylan, is his name. Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle made it out mm-hmm. alive, was a threat, like had a, a, a threat, you know, a legit gun and made it out alive and they can find their ways to de-escalate that. And then same thing with Dylan who shot up the church back in 20, I'll never, never forget in Kentucky on internship. And, and and it's just a stark difference. And it's, that's the piece that always frustrates me. And 
angers me for her specifically in this case, because it's like, and that's where the justification for people coming, you know, Mm -hmm. now the, when it came to George Floyd, which was another heavy thing that we experienced on what Tuesday, I think it wins. I don't know. So it was, um, today is Thursday. So it was Tuesday. And then, um, that same night she was shot. Right. And so it's like people comparing and contrasting and it's just all of these lies. The, the verdict was heavy. The just the justice waiting for not justice, but accountability was heavy. So it's been a lot. And it's so hard to actively try to pursue your mental health and be black in America. Joy is just a radical act in of itself. Hence one of the purposes of this show. And so that's no, not the tea, but the news y'all. And I, there's, there's, I don't have an answer for that. I don't have a solution for that, but other than we need to sit with it because it is a reality and it's a lot of people's realities. And so I do think it's timely though, because these backdrops, these, the structural state sanctioned violence, these systems that have been put in place by white terrorism and white toxicity is operating and it's impacting our lives. And so I think that you would be great, Dr. Nikki, to really set the backdrop of why there is even a need for allyship. And then we can talk about how it looks and what it does not look like and how to cultivate it. Yeah. Ooh, so allyship to me. So let me talk about it in this way. And my understanding of all liberation movements, regardless of whether we're talking about race or gender uh, disability, that all liberation movements um, happen in coalition. That in order for there to be systemic change, there has to be systemic recognition that there is oppression. And so that means that everybody involved in the system has to participate. Um, And that requires that our uh, folks that are like-minded, that understand the world, intellectually at the least, but have the capacity for empathy for the understanding of other people's oppression are required to engage in ways that help um, disrupt. And for me, those are the fundamental pieces. Like when we say Black Lives Matter, there's such profundity in that statement, right? So for me, when I unpack that and think about allyship, I'm thinking in particular around recognition, recognition of the fact that you have to see humanity in me as a black woman to be able to recognize that the way that systems are set up dehumanize me. That, that That's a fundamental sort of truth that you have to buy into. And then you have to also realize that um, your life as a white person, as another person of color uh, is, is diminished in some significant way by anti-blackness, by white toxicity. And then you therefore have to make a decision that you choose to do something about it. Um, and and I think about, I always think about, um, for me, when I think about allyship and sort of my personal litmus test is always um, sort of the freedom riders of the 1960s. Um, you know, that there was the Montgomery bus boycott, right? And black folks in Montgomery, Alabama boycotted for a year, solid year, walking everywhere, refused to take the bus. But then the youth decided Okay, we could get this taken care of in Alabama, but if we want to see change for what about folks in Chicago or folks in Indianapolis or folks in Miami or right, what do we do about that? And so they realize, well, um, buses that travel state lines now become a federal issue because now we're crossing states. 
And so let's then challenge that. And that happened in coalition with young white people. And there were white young white people that gave up their lives, lost their lives in acts of violence in the process of working for liberation for black folks, working for the right to vote, the right to be treated as full citizens, right? And that's sort of my litmus test. Like, are you gonna ride with me? <laughs> Literally. Will you ride I love with that. me? <laughs> I love it. Literally. Literally and figuratively. So for me, that's where the verb part comes in. And why I always talk about the ship, we talk about relationship. That's why we add ship to it. You have to feel a sense of connection to hmm. the individuals for whom you um, have empathy for. You have hmm. to have some recognition that um, my well-being is limited as long as your well-being is limited, right? Hmm. Um, there's an uh, um, indigenous quote from Australia that says, if you've come to help me, you're wasting your time. Yep. But if you come because you recognize your liberation is bound up with mine, then let's work together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what I see a lot happening in these streets is a lot of hashtagging. I, you know, I want to uh, talk about this trend that I've seen. Hmm. So late, part of my pursuit of radical joy <laughs> has been at night instead of scroll like death scrolling through um, Facebook or whatever. I've now, now gone to TikTok. I feel that's where the real comedy lies. That's where, that's where I find my joy. Is in these <laughs> that's where the comedy lies. <laughs> um, and so I'll be scrolling through TikTok. I don't really, I don't follow a lot of people. There's no rhyme or reason. I just go on there to be entertained and to laugh out loud. What I have seen though, is a number of what I would call white wannabe allies. Like there seems to be a trend I've seen a couple of videos with white women sort of angrily talking about how anti-racist they are. Like they'll give an example of, I guess I saw this woman last night saying, I don't know what it is about me that makes people think that they could be racist, say racist things to me, but they had the wrong one today. Da, 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 da. And another person was like, I went out to the store and realized, um, I got to the door and realized I had forgot my mask and I had to run back into the car to get my mask because I was afraid they thought I was going to be a Republican. Um, and then someone else that's sort of like a mommy blogger, vlogger was saying like, why is it when I start talking about microaggressions, there's crickets on my page. You comment on everything else. You like everything else, but the moment. And so there is a real sort of phenomenon that's happening, but because of my experiences with white fragility, with, um, white comfort, it makes me go, is this, would you ride with me? Is this beyond a TikTok movement, right? Is this beyond um, being on trend? Is this something that would require you to sit in your discomfort, right? Are you so connected to this movement of anti-racism? Are you so so sort of connected to the hurt and harm of, of anti-Blackness that you would do more than post a TikTok video? I don't know. I don't know. Cause, cause, cause that ain't that uncomfortable, right? To me. So when mm -hmm. we're talking about cultivating, cultivating allyship, one of the things I hear for sure is that we need to know that all liberation happens in coalition. This is not one thing that we can do alone. And yes. that's number one, like that, like at least an intellectual understanding of that. And then the humanity part of it, the emotional understanding standing is that you have to be able to see our humanity and see specifically when we're talking about anti-black racism, you have to be able to see the humanity and see that, I am not seen as human or afforded the same privileges or afforded the same well-being. Bet you now want to be an ally. 
part of what you I'm hearing you say is that it's comfortable in these social media worlds to do this because you can just post a video and feel good and be mm -hmm. done. I remember like there was a survey back uh, prior to maybe the 2016 elections, I think. And like somebody was doing some research on like how actively involved were you in like the elections? And it was like, did you repost something? Did you mm -hmm. like something? Did you get out and go to the voting? And I was like, whoa, okay. So I didn't got caught up in this reposting thinking like that is a significant major action. And mm -hmm. I think that that's what happens. It's like, okay, I reposted that Black Lives Matter or I am getting on TikTok saying XYZ. So that makes me an ally. No, one of the steps of cultivating allyship requires discomfort. Mm -hmm. Right. It requires that you be uncomfortable. But in in those moments where it would be easier to do nothing or to not say nothing or just post a TikTok and be done. So you post that TikTok. But are you talking to your family members? Right. Are you talking to your friends? Right. Are you truly, you know, before you even post the TikTok, I'll back up in cultivating allyship, although that is one of those things to do is to, you know, be willing to be uncomfortable. But have you even educated yourself and done the work? That's a critical piece, right? Because if you're not careful, you haven't educated yourself on systemic oppression, you know, sanctioned, uh, state sanctioned violence against black folks, then you are misinformed, right? And you're moving and you're not. And I feel like the most dangerous person in the world is the unaware person. So have you educated yourself enough, begin to get understanding and then not centered you? Because part of that TikTok feel like you are centering your willingness to wear a mask your willingness to check somebody out is it about you or is it about you know the 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 coalition we trying to do to go towards the liberation train is it about the image right mm. um is it about the image and I, i'm so glad that you um eventually sort of said about centering right i think part of uh, whiteness and i would say in particular at least in my experience has been um in, at least in my experiences in the professional world, um, which of which there is a long history, right? So graduate school um, back in the late '90s, all the way through now, right? So I've I've been in spaces um, in with with in close proximity in professional settings with lots of white women, and my experience is that white women are particularly skilled at centering themselves in any issue. Very skilled. Very and skilled. so that education piece is a recognition, like like if you're going to do real education on self, then you have to learn how to like not center yourself. Like <laughs> it ain't about you, cheese. Like you got to get on over here, sis. Be quiet. Be silent. Listen. Learn to listen for understanding. Learn to listen for empathy. Learn, for, learn to listen for uh, understanding about yourself, not about me. Right. Learn to listen for understanding about yourself and how do you hold yourself accountable, I think is also one of the other requirements, meaning when you backslide, because you will, because that is the sort of um, entrainment that is white supremacy, right? It's, it, the goal is to keep itself moving. How do you hold yourself accountable? How are you willing to sit in the discomfort when you are ca called out on your centering, on your um detouring on your white fragility right how do you sit in there 
And I think that that requires another step, right? Of like cultivating. And this is not a step-by-step. So I'm saying step just to throw out nuggets for people who may be listening in Mm -hmm. and there, but this is not a linear. It's not linear. It's not a linear upward progression step, but step-by-step, but it is necessary for you to be hearing different things. I think it's important Mm -hmm. to be honest. So the reason why the last three things that we mentioned is so hard when you're trying to cultivate allyship specifically amongst white people is because of uh, white dominant norms, which is all about perfectionism, right? Which would preclude you from being able to be honest that you have made mistakes, right? Or that you have messed up. It also is about a lot of individualism, right? You know, individual pull yourself up by the bootstraps as opposed to collectively working with other people to achieve a goal. So these values that, you know, you are socialized with require some unlearning and some undoing. And that requires honesty to say, wow, I can't tell you how many times I've, me and Dr. Nick have been talking and maybe like, oh, this may be my internalized elitism coming up or my internalized anti-blackness coming up or my internalized homophobia coming up. We all have biases. We all have prejudices. There is a very cis, heteronormative, able-bodied, you know, in all the rest of the isms projection of what normative is and we're socialized around that and so you've internalized those values whether you know them or you, you don't it would be in our best interest particularly if you're trying to cultivate allyship so when they come up it's like okay I didn't realize that that's what I was doing there it is how do I then work to undo it and that requires some honesty and vulnerability that is required to be in allyship because you have to do the work you you absolutely have to do the work um So I also think it's important that we think about uh, what sort of indicators we might want to give for uh, black and brown folks that are listening. That's good. That's good. Because um, just as all liberation work is coalition, you know, if you look at any of the data, pick an article, pick an outlet, pick a a research study, a a Forbes, a Fortune, a New York Times or whatever, you know that the C-suite of the major corporations in this country do not reflect diversity. Period. <laughs> As period. my colleague, <laughs> Dr. Luanda likes to say, that's all period, Pooh. Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't, right? And so when we think about, that's part one. Part two, we have, we knew um, for sure, but we have had manifest in a very different way um, understanding of how much overrepresentation there is of Black and Brown folks in lower paid positions, right? And all of these essential workers, but you don't pay them essentially. That's a different podcast. So, right. So we know there's an imbalance in the structure. And so when we think about how we want to um, leverage all the resources we have available to us in these systems, in our places of employment and worlds of work, there has to be folks that we can count on as allies. And I really am at a place where, um, like for me, being an ally is is like an entry ticket, but it's not VIP. Like I need you to actually be an accomplice. That's good. <laughs> can we get that? Being an ally is an entry, entry ticket, ticket, but it is not VIP. It's not VIP. And that means for me and the way that I navigate the world of work is I can build relationship with you. Um, I can likely be more genuine with you if I perceive you as an ally, but if I perceive you as an accomplished, if I perceive you as a sponsor, then I have some requirements for how you will then help me. 
that means that I have identified that you have a different level of leverage in this system, that you have a different level of access, that you have a different level of understanding the nuances of this particular culture, and you are willing to use that to my advantage. And I think that that is the thing that we want to talk about in terms of how do we how do we spot those people? How do we mm. help you make sure you given the tea to the right people, right? Because mm-hmm. um, Karens will stab you in your eye, not your back. <laughs> They'll stab you in your eye uh, before you realize it. So it's important for us to also yeah. recognize that part of our mental health yeah. is being um, vigilant and being aware and being protective of who we allow to get close to us in the world of work. Mm-hmm. I think that that's really good. And we I'm a, we should spend some significant amount of time on that. <laughs> I see you, Rashada, say Rashada. y'all got me over here. <laughs> Same face on my phone, all these gems. Mm-hmm. One of the ways, I think that, let me, I want to reiterate that because I think that that's so critical to black and brown mental health at work is being vigilant about who is an ally and who's performing allyship and who is an accomplice and who's a sponsor and who's performing it. That is the biggest lesson that we can learn. Like who is truly doing it, who's performing it, because that's going to protect your mental health in a completely different way. And it's unfortunate we have to move through the world like that, but we do. So one of my indicators is that I, you don't have to, you know, one of my uh, mentors at Stanford is Jan Barker Alexander. And one of the things that she says is like, there's no one way to do black. We're not a monolith, right? We are definitely a diverse people. She's like, but when you're sitting at a table, you're most certainly going to be at some tables with some power. And I would say, this is my indicator for allyships and allies and accomplices. You're going to be sitting at tables with uh, with power. And I don't need you to act black and I don't need you to be black, but I do need you to think black. When they have a policy, when they have a procedure, when they're making a decision, I want you to think about how this is going to impact your black and brown folks. And I want you to use your voice and ask those questions. And if you have your power, I want you to use your power to make decisions that will not further marginalize me. And when I'm hearing you at the table thinking about, uh, well, there's not representation here or you are there are opportunities where they're asking less threatening black people to be at the table and you know that my voice is more skilled or I might I have more expertise around that topic as opposed to you because people will sit at a table that they don't belong to be at with no expertise but just because part of white supremacy is the horde power they will sit there so are you giving up power are you thinking black about how these things are going to impact me using your voice to do it and are you sharing your power and your access with me so as to be less marginalized right i'm about action you know telling me you know wow that was a tough verdict or i'm thinking about you or what what have you really doesn't really mean a lot to me action means a lot to me when i see you in action i can spot you as a potential ally or a potential accomplice Yes, absolutely. So for and for me, the like the correlate of that is, um, I don't need you to run and tell me nothing. I don't, you know, like um, <laughs> if you're doing it, do it right. Like you should be doing it whether I'm present or not, whether I'm going to give you a cookie for it or not. Um, I had a friend that said that recently somebody uh their job was like, I just want to give you a hug, and that like they texted me like. Everybody is putting on the extra right now because this stuff is back in the public spotlight. And I just, uh, everybody's checking. All the non-Black folks are checking on all the Black folks at work. I just checking on you. And how's it going? That don't do nothing for me. 
uh, speaking for me personally. So when they texted me and they were like, uh, this person was like, I just want to give you a hug. And I was like, don't go hug they mama. Like go <laughs> hug somebody else. That's not that that won't do anything for me. And for me, that again is about centering themselves. Like, how dare you think I don't have community to go to? How dare you think that we haven't developed and perfected generations of ways of surviving this? Like, we have our mechanisms that serve us. We don't need your your hug is not a bomb to me, right? Um, you there, Doctor Lawanda? I think you got frozen for a second. Oh, oh yeah, okay. your hug yeah, is not a bomb. I'm here. I don't <laughs> yeah, know if you can your see hug me, is but not I'm a here. <laughs> right. So that's the thing. It's not about what you run and tell me that you've done. It's what I hear about what you've done. When I am not in the room, what have you said on my behalf or for me? Um, when you have the opportunity to speak out, do you take that opportunity? Um, when other people are talking about me, do you come back and tell me that? Like, that's what you can come run and tell me. Like, basically, they're undercutting your contributions or even though this was your, you know, uh, sort of intellectual labor, your name wasn't mentioned. Like, those are the details you can give me if you're working in allyship with me. That is the way that you then begin to leverage and yield your power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I would also even argue, like, to what extent have you been immersed in and understand the culture? Because I mm -hmm. think people read a lot about Black folks. They watch a lot of TV, which is rooted in a lot of stereotypes mm -hmm. or one-dimensional depictions of Black folks. But to what extent have you been a minority and understand Black culture and been in that, immersed in that space, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I've been a minority, well... Collectivist culture is the global majority. So let me be clear. But yeah. in terms of the only black person in spaces, sometimes it's been, you know, significant amount of times. I'm not uncomfortable being the minority. But if you're uncomfortable being around black culture and you haven't been to any experiences that would give you a more firsthand, nuanced understanding of black culture, I'm really questioning to what extent are you comfortable and if you're not comfortable can you really see my humanity because I'm exposing myself to cultures all the time I'm inquisitive I'm curious I want to know more um and that once I know more I can learn more about your experience once I learn more about your experience I can more readily identify the forces that are operating against you mm -hmm. that keep you from moving freely in your experience and so because of that I now have a more nuanced right understanding right. I have a, a accomplice that I feel is an accomplice um that I work with at Stanford and I remember the first time I met her at work, I saw that she had a bag on and it, I was like, that looked like the Association of Black Psychologists bag. Mm. And and I looked and I said, hmm, you you a part of Association of Black Psychologists? She's like, oh, no, I'll go to the conferences. I like to immerse myself in different cultures and understand and be uncomfortable. So I go mm. to this culture, you know, go to this conference. I go to this conference. And I thought, have you been to AAPI conference, Luanda? Do you have you immersed yourself? You know, understood? Yeah. So I think that part of it is showing a level of comfort and nuanced understanding of a culture and not just from a spectacle observer perspective, mm -hmm. but like being immersed and being comfortable in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would ag agree with that um, in the sense that you you can't begin to. You, you really can't do the work on it. I, uh, it's like. Um, you're going to tell me how to fix something, but you've never actually seen the, the problem, right? Like, how are you going to do that? How are you going to tell me how to 
fix my computer. If you never worked with this particular computer, you don't know what the issue is, right? So you do have to have a sort of a front row view. Um, I remember this was years ago, but I was in graduate school and I um, developed a good relationship with um, a white male colleague and he was a single parent and he had a little girl and we would go out to like restaurants or places. And this was so fascinating to me because they would look at me to ask me what she wanted for her dinner or what she wanted to eat. And I, I would be so, like, clearly this is a white man and a white child. I'm sitting on the other <laughs> side of the table. But people's gender bias was such that mom knows you don't engage dad in these things. This is mom or this is the mom like figure. And it got to be this thing. We sort of sat back and began to observe how it happened. Like people just looking over the whole fact of race in this particular instance, because their gender bias is just that strong. And that was like a whole new level of awareness for him. Um, and then there was always the assumption that he was going to pay. Right. And I, which was fine by me, perfectly fine by me <laughs> in graduate school for sure. But we would talk about that. Right. And so being privy, like being in relationship with me, seeing me as a fully human person, but then getting in sort of a bird's eye view of my experience was extremely eye-opening for him. And that led us to have more conversations. Um, and I think that's the other thing that I would say around spotting allies or uh, cultivating allyship. Part of whiteness is to get too comfortable too quickly, like too familiar. Mm, not that's good. Too familiar. Too good. That's good. Too familiar too quickly, right? And so can the person respect your boundaries? Can they hear, you can assist me with this, I can engage with you on this, but there's a line here for which you cannot cross. Meaning, right, so, so if I bring you into spaces, can you be respectful of how you need to conduct yourself in those spaces? Right? That part, that part, that part. And, and, and I see that happen all the time where I know it's performative or you haven't done enough work. For example, mm -hmm. I may be, I remember during the Fed Uprising, as you were calling it, and we were in the heart of the summer and working at Stanford, it was so many different acts of anti-Blackness on top of what was going on globally, on top of students just developing and emerging. And I remember everybody, so we held space at the Black Community Service Center. We held space for people to be there and to gather and people want to volunteer to go and that are not black to assist. I mean, it is an emotional burden to carry all of the weight of the students. So you do want some support. And the other um, black colleague was out and one of them was on maternity leave. So it's just me. And I'm thinking, who is going to come into this space and not center themselves? Mm -hmm. Who is going to come into this space and allow people, the black folks are here to have their experience and not feel compelled to talk or feel compelled to be a white savior, mm -hmm. feel compelled to add anything, but just be, just be present. Know how to act when I take you somewhere, right? Because cause they my name on this. If I, if I brought you in this space, they looking at me like, Dr. Hill, all right, you didn't brought somebody in here that's non-black. Can I trust them? And if you ain't got but one time to mess up your credibility, you're going to mess up mine too. So I need you to understand boundaries and be able to respect boundaries. Mm -hmm. And we can have a candid conversation about that, but that's a good indicator as well. Do you over take up space? Do you not respect the boundaries when you are in a communal space? Because there are norms. Absolutely. So here we have a question um, from Rashada and it uh, says, I believe Dr. Hill said the most dangerous person is the unaware person. How do you address an individual who's performing allyship and isn't aware that their efforts are not actually making meaningful impact? Speak on that, Dr. Hill. Mm, performing allyship. 
That's one conversation. Um, because I think they know. <laughs> I, I think they. I think they be knowing. That's not. And knowing that, because uh, I mean, I was that's a conversation. Because my initial reaction, Rashad, I'm very uh, confrontational. Um, would be, you know, I'm experiencing you as inauthentic, and I've said that to people. Like, I'm I'm having a hard time connecting to the, your. I don't perceive this as authentic, so it's a disconnect for me. So the performing allyship, I think, is one piece. Not having an impact is a separate conversation. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, Doctor Nikki. But my initial stab at it is is I would I think I usually say I feel like people are rushing and they are jumping to action without being fully informed without having people on the team who can inform them my friend says it all the time who's a former athlete around DEI efforts right because everybody want to be a part of the diversity equity and inclusion efforts you don't hop on a, a, a basketball team because you you don't coach a basketball team because you're passionate about basketball and you're interested in it which is what people do, usually people who are allies who are trying to do these DEI initiatives. So why do we not do that when it, why do we feel we can do that with DEI initiatives? We don't go get a coach who has an expert, who has a track record, who has a winning record, who knows how to make impact, who knows how to move the ball forward. So I usually, when it comes to the impact piece, I usually try to pause and say like, hey, have we evaluated what we've been doing right now? Do we even have all the pieces here? It's not being impactful. In fact, I think is you know wasting time. So how 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 can we have a conversation about that? Now, based on the answer, that'll determine the the follow up. Yeah. So what I would add is, um, yeah, I tend to be. I don't think I'm as confrontational as Dr. Luanda. I'm really pausing. Like, would I say that? Uh, like, oh, you said that. <laughs> But I am a direct communicator. I will say that I value, I, I deeply value direct communication. Mind, me being able to transmit it, and you being able to receive it. And so I think for me around the performance piece, um, it it is going to depend on how much time I have that day. Like like it's going to depend on how invested I am in you as a person, right? To begin with, are you worth my time and energy? I, and I'm going to make some determination of that, right? Like, is this worth, is is the energy I might expend in this conversation worth any benefit, right? Is it going to shift something for, for me, for other Black folks in the space, right? It might not always be transactional just for me, but I do try to think about, is this going to help some other Black person so at some point if I take the time to plant this seed or engage? And that is sort of my bottom line. How much energy do I want to give? Um. And so then I also think about, I think, and then related to that, part of the ways that I may get at it without being as direct or confrontational is I like to use curiosity. So tell me how you think that's contributing to allyship. Or I've heard you say this, tell me what's what's your motivation for that, right? I want to curry their insight on it to see. Because I do think folks have a good indicator. You know good and damn well if you've only done hashtag thoughts and prayers on social media or you reposted somebody else's article on LinkedIn, but you've never done one thing, then I think you have a good sense that you're still living in your own bubble, right? And and, and then to uh, Dr. Lawanda's point, I'm going to get a better gauge of how much more I might want to invest or not based on your reaction to that, right? Is it, is it defensiveness? I'm out. 
if it's a, at least taking a moment to pause and be reflective to say, I hadn't thought about that, then I'll probably say that might be some space where you want to start again. Right. And I'm still and then I will move on. Um, if there's a genuine opportunity for um, engagement, then I'll consider about what I might be willing to do in that way. Right. So that's sort of how I think about that. I think that if you sort of, you know, you look at the broad population uh, of folks that are unimpacted by any particular ism, the folks that are actually willing to be allies in the way that has meaning and impact and merit are a are, are very shallow amount. Otherwise, the systems wouldn't keep working. The systems work because the vast majority of people participate in the systems. Um, and so that means that everybody who's calling themselves an ally ain't an ally. These are just facts. Just They're not. Miracle and facts. And I think one of the things that I would give for Black folks, too, I spend a large amount of time wasting energy on trying to convince or deal with one of the things that comes up when you question, you know, whiteness and its motives is white fragility and defensiveness. And so you know that that defensiveness is just there to, to keep them from moving forward, having to see themselves or see their socialization. And I spent a lot of time, you know, in the throes of that. And so mm. I would, and that contributes to exhaustion, that contributes to burning out and mental health and so forth. And so I would say to be very cautious and be thoughtful about your energy. Your energy and your time is precious. Your intellectual capital is precious. Your words is precious. Who do you want to, who, I call them, who seeds is, uh, who, what soil is ripe? Mm. What soil is ripe for me to sow some seeds? Or do the rest of y'all got weeds and stuff growing all around it? I don't have energy for that. But if I've seen that you've done the work and I'm pausing and I'm asking you some questions and you are there, then I may sow some seeds. But if you're not, like, I love to be like, mm, that's interesting. And then go back on mute. That means I don't have nothing else to offer. because This <laughs> is not worth my time. Absolutely. So are there any other um indicators that we think we should mention that we haven't talked about because so so to be clear i just want to make sure we're recapping right i am not mm -hmm. at all for um i'm not at all interested in um <laughs> wish i to say soil just barren just dry <laughs> cracked earth um but um, but, um I, I think i think there may be um an assumption that we're talking about this in a transactional way. And I don't mean to intend that it's transactional. That's good. What I do mean to intend is um, the folks that are genuinely invested in your well-being as a person of color, genuinely invested in your success in the workplace as a person of color. And by genuine, I mean they are willing to be uncomfortable. They are willing actually to give something up. Right. Mm -hmm. They are willing to say, I actually think this person is better for the job. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like that is what we're really talking about. And in my experience in the world of work, those folks are few and far between. Mm -hmm. So then for me it, and, and thinking about matters of survival, we've yeah. all bought into this system of capitalism. We all have to get bread. We all mm -hmm. got to go do something to get money to live life. Right. And, mm -hmm. and most of us want to have as much to live as comfortably and safely as possible. That is mm -hmm. a fundamental human um, desire, right? Mm -hmm. That's a, a motivator. And so then I think it behooves us. It really makes us um, 
it's an indicator of our wellness when we think about how do we find folks to maximize our well-being? Mm-hmm. How do we engage with individuals in ways that will maximize our, our well-being? And mm-hmm. if there is opportunity for a deeper, richer connection, absolutely, mm-hmm. let's be open to that. I have... Mm-hmm. <laughs> I say this tongue in cheek, but with all seriousness too. I have I have a good white friend, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and one of my one of my closest friends um, is a white woman, but she's shown up to be who she is every single day that I've had an encounter with her. Anytime there's been a moment where I'd be like, let me see what she's gonna do this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> this gonna be it, right? And this has been ugh. 17 years of friendship, 15 mm. years of friendship, right? And shows up in ways that not only lets me know that she is genuinely invested in doing the work for me, but she shows up in ways that she's genuinely invested in doing the work for my daughter. That mm. the ways that I see her white children talk about justice, the way that they engage me around equity and justice lets me know that even when I am not present, She's mm-hmm. told them, mm-hmm. teach, taught them, shown them the ways that they should be in the world. Mm-hmm. But I think those people are few and far they between. Are. That is just been my are. experience, right? Um, and that, but we have to go to work every day. And most of us, especially when we um, get to a certain level of elevation in our career, we are not going to be surrounded by us. We don't live in the world of boomerang. We, that mm-hmm. ain't. <laughs> we don't, I forgot that. We don't okay. live in boomerang. We don't live in Wakanda. We don't um, live in um, what's where is coming to America? What's that kingdom? That's not the world we live in. And even when we have black products and services and spaces, um, there's always white folks there, right? It, th- this is just our experience. And I also want to be clear that they could be other brown folks mm. that are also white identified, right? Yeah. White, white in their ideology and world. White aligned. Mm-hmm. And so I think it is, um, I think it is unfortunate that we have to talk about it in this sort of transactional way, but I also think it's a reflection of ways that we work to be healthy and well in a dysfunctional system. Right. And it's, it's just where we are as a society. Right. Mm-hmm. It's where we are as a society and we have to function as such because we we're going toward that liberation, not there yet. So I think it's good. I'm going to give a recap. I think the first thing here's just a few tips. And for those of you who just coming in at the end and think about check your, you know, check yourself and see if these are parts of the things that you do. If you consider yourself. Actually, I, we forgot that one. You do not name yourself an ally. You are named an ally by Black folks, you don't get to say, oh, I'm an ally to the queer community. Has the queer community named me as an ally? So that is an earned thing. It's not something that you can give and self-label as yourself. You can do the work and that should be enough, right? So it's not about you. It's not about you. So, you know, whiteness and its socialization centers itself. It's not about you. It's about that coalition towards liberation. Um, and it's toward doing your part and not being complicit in the system and participating in it. And by you benefited from it, further marginalizing others. Listen, right? Listen, listen to people's stories. Listen to understand, listen to gain knowledge and insight before you even speak or do. Listen, 
be honest with yourself. Be honest. Real, recognize real. We are all socialized in a white, toxic society. And we have biases based on those things. And so to be honest, and start, you're starting there. <laughs> you're not starting above it. You're starting there. You're starting with anti-Black internalized sentiments. It's the reality of it, right? Nobody escapes it. Talk to your friends and family. I want you to do that work, that emotional labor, so I don't have to do it, so that they understand it, because you most likely have more emotional capacity to do it than I do. That's going to require you to get out of your comfort zone, which will be the next tip. Get out of your comfort zone. You know, equity requires that you give up power, that you give up something, and giving up something means that you're going to have to be uncomfortable, and that's, the, that's, that's it. If you can give up your discomfort, some people have to lose their lives. What's your comfort? <laughs> Let me just say the other thing about talking to friends and family, talk to colleagues and peers. That's what I always say, too, about the workplace, because ally, white folks talking to other white folks about anti-racism has way more impact and meaning than us being on here for thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of podcasts. Right. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't hit the same. It's the same way that men can engage men differently and talking about mm. their own sexism, their own um, homophobia, right? It hits different when somebody mm. that looks like you yeah. lives in the world like you speaks about someone else's experience. Um, mm -hmm. And the least that you could do is to have an uncomfortable or difficult conversation with someone who says that they love you and is invested in you. The least you could do is have an uncomfortable conversation with them. Give up your comfort so somebody don't have to lose their life. That's how I feel about it. It's, it's, it's really not a, a tall order. And the last one I was, the last two, educate yourself, please. Be informed. A lot of, you know, there's a lot of the invisible forces, a lot of isms that you may not be aware of that's interacting. So educate yourself and then learn from your screw-ups. Learn from your mistakes. We're going to mess up. You're going to say the wrong thing. You're going to get familiar. It happens. You're going to think you can touch my hair. Now, you gonna think you can talk shit about uh, no, 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 no. And when I have to confront you about that and say, hey, you went too far, crossed the boundary. Conflict's a part of relationship. Just learn from it. Be better. <laughs> That's all we got for you, you know? Yes, I think those are great. And so those are all the things that we would offer for folks that are listening to this that, um, want to be an ally, um, believe they have been engaging in allyship. And then for those of us that need allies and accomplices in the workplace, these are the sort of indicators. Are, are folks that you um, are aligning yourself with, are they demonstrating these characteristics? Yeah. Have you seen them do this? Um, are they willing to do this over and over again? One of the things I also wanted to add was for like number six, we have be informed, stay, uh, be informed. I added stay informed. Stay informed. That's but a good. huge part of it is um, unlearning. There's so much unlearning you have to do mm -hmm. as a person who holds power, right? And I think about, so I, it, so the correlate for me has been two specific areas where I'm continuing to evolve and grow. And that is around, my understanding of gender. Um, mm. And even when I thought I had a working understanding of gender, the more trans folks that I have in my life um, and the more that I engage um, and, and listen to the voices of trans folks, the more I realize how much more expansive mm. gender is and how much more growth I have to do around that. Mm. Um, and really sort of like challenging myself on where my discomforts have been and why, mm. why, why am I uncomfortable by that? Mm. Um, and then around my ableism, right? So many things mm. that you take for granted as an able-bodied person because mm. so much of the world is designed quite literally, physically, our material world is 
designed around able-bodied, normative-bodied individuals. And so when I sit and think about the work that I'm willing to do around that and how I'm holding myself accountable and also what it brings to me, like how much more expansive I am in my humanity, the more that I do that work, then I should have no less standards for folks who are mm. wanting to partner with me around my, my blackness. Mm-hmm. Um, if as, as a black woman in my systemic oppression, if I could be willing to sit in my discomfort about my relationship to power dynamics with other identities, you for damn sure ought to be doing it as a white person. Like exactly, huh? exactly, because no you got it on on multiple levels, multiple. No excuses. So that's good. Right. That's good. That's good. I hope y'all have gained something, been inspired. I have appreciated you, Rashada. I hope you back in mix. I know we missed well. you. We're going to be uh, part two of this. And those of you who are in the room listening silently, I hope y'all will be back next week and bring somebody. We have made it to the last nerve. I'll give it to you, Dr. Nikki. Really? I feel like I just had it. I feel like, okay. Oh, God. I don't even know. I I don't even have the same vigor. Um, I, I really just want, I want us to have a real honest conversation about policing. And, yeah. and a real honest willingness to acknowledge that police are an extension of white supremacist thought, ideology. And they, they are the enforcers yeah. and that they enact terror and violence on the lives of black and brown people every yeah. single day. Yeah, I am literally like every time I think I'm weary, there's another layer, right? Like how within... The past two weeks, did we re-witness the four-week, four-week murder trial for, of Derek Chauvin for committing murder against George Floyd? Four weeks it took for something that we all witnessed around the globe. Four weeks for the accountability system to work. And in the context of that four weeks, another young Black man was shot 10 minutes from where George Floyd lost his life. And within hours of the sentencing, I mean, uh, or um, deliberation um, of Derek Chauvin, a, a young black girl was killed. Like that picture says so much about the state of anti-blackness that is state-sanctioned uh, violence and terror mm-hmm. that exists. Um, I spoke with my mother earlier. So my mother was born in 1945 mm. in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She graduated high school in 1963. Desegregation didn't happen until 1965. Mm. And so I thought, I think about what is that context for her? Mm. What dreams has she had for her life to come true to then watch sort of come full circle and be, be back to the same spaces of worry and fear for me as her child or for her granddaughter, right? And like the, the uh, attack of our hope as people. And it's a, for me, it is a, it is not just the violence. It is the persistent attack on our hope. Yeah. It is the persistent attack on our ability to thrive. Um, that I think is the ultimate goal and how much energy and effort we have to put into fighting against that day in and day out. And I'm, yeah. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of it. Yeah. That's I'm real. That's real. That I think that's the perfect last nerve. It's just like, do the work and and no do better 
Be better. Do better and be better at the end of the day. And 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 white guilt is a real thing. It should. You should have it constantly. It should be something you work hard to get rid of because your guilt comes from a place. Guilt emotions give us information. You're guilty because of something. You feel something. It's because of exactly what we just talked about, that you know that it's state sanctioned, that you know that it's an attack on hope, that you know power you have, you're hoarding. Like, do something with the guilt. Make Turn it into action and, and not let it be about you. Don't let it be about getting rid of the guilt, but making it more safer for people that look like me, that look like Dr. Nikki. Yep. That's that on that. Y'all come back next week. We're going to have Dr. Dixon and Dr. Bamashikbin be here with us next week because Dr. Loanda and I are going to be out. We're super excited to be going on vacation. Yes. Away. We will miss you all, but um, I'm sure the fellas will hold it down. They always do. All right. Y'all be well. <laughs>